Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life, produced by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Everyone knows that exercise is important, but way too many of us think of going to the gym or going for a jog as a chore. So we put it off or we ignore it completely. Today we're going to talk with best-selling author and health psychologist Kelly McGonigal about a new book she's written that says exercise is far more than something you do to keep your weight under control. In fact, if you're ignoring exercise, you may be robbing yourself of experiencing true joy. Listen in, because this episode may help you take the work out of workout. Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life. I'm Bob Peacock. I am so excited to talk with today's guest. Kelly McGonigal is a lecturer at Stanford University, a health psychologist, a wonderful communicator, and an expert in the mind-body connection. I am a huge TED Talk fan, and if you haven't seen it already, Kelly's TED Talk on how to make stress your friend has over 22.5 million views, and I confess that I have probably contributed to about 100 of those. Kelly was named by Oprah's O Magazine as its first visionary of 2020. She's also a multi-best-selling author. Her latest book is titled The Joy of Movement, How Exercise Helps Us Find Happiness, Hope, Connection, and Courage. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I guess today I'm here to help you make your workout your friend. That's absolutely right. I've heard you say how important it is for you as a lecturer to teach not just from theories and textbooks, but to teach from your own personal experience. That was certainly true of your teaching about meditation and stress, and it certainly seems true of your lessons in your latest book, The Joy of Movement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, exercise is one of the most important things that I do for my own mental health, and it's been a tremendous source of meaning and connection in my own life. And it's not just that I um, feel it's important to speak from my own life and experience, um, but also really listening to the experiences of others. So, you know, whenever I make recommendations about whether it's how to deal with stress or how to, to deal with mental health challenges or why exercise is so amazing for your mental health, I'm also spending a lot of time listening to the direct experiences of other people. I'm wanting to make sure that any insights from science that I'm recommending are ones that really work in people's lives. So what was your motivation for writing this book? Well, so most people know me as a psychologist, but I also have been teaching group exercise for 20 years. Um, and in that time, I've seen how, how coming together to move together has been so important for so many people in terms of finding a, a, a sense of confidence, uh, a sense of connection and community, a sense of greater hope and optimism. And um, you know, all the work that I've done as a psychologist and talking about the mind-body relationship um, that's my central goal is to help people find community and hope and courage and meaning even when life is difficult. And so this is this is basically just um, the next step in that that mission. And um, I'm just so excited to be able to talk about this thing that has been so important in my life um, and to to be able to share this idea that movement is not a punishment for something that you ate. And movement doesn't have to be like medicine that you choke down, that, that no matter what body you have, no matter what physical challenges you might have, and no matter what your past relationship with exercise or fitness has been, um, my, my direct experience and my understanding of the research suggests that it is possible to find actual joy in moving your body um, in a way 
that will do tremendous things for not only your physical health, but your brain health and your emotional well-being. I suspect that you purposely didn't title the book, The Joy of Exercise. Why did you choose the word movement, the joy of yeah, movement? We debated this. So um, I actually, I am fine with the word exercise, um, but I know that a lot of people, when they hear that word, what they think of is, you know, phys ed trauma from their youth or someone yelling at them about how they need to burn a certain number of calories in order to get their body in shape for summer. Um, there's just a lot of body shaming, stigma, punishment. A lot of people associate exercise with basically um, things that they don't enjoy um, and, um, and feeling, you know, either scared about their health or ashamed about their body. Whereas movement is basically how we engage with life. So whether you're having, you know, a dance party in your living room with your kid or you're going for a walk um, or you're, you're gardening or you're at the gym lifting weights and getting stronger, that, that movement is essentially how human beings engage with life. We use our muscles, our heart pounds to give us energy. Um, and we know that when the body is physically active, um, people who are more active, whether they're doing it by walking to work or they're doing it at the gym or they're doing it in a way that they just enjoy, um, that, that those people are happier, they have more meaning in life, they have better relationships with other people. Um, in many ways, movement is how human beings thrive. That's great. So you wrote that physical activity can be mind-altering, affecting the same neurotransmitter systems as drugs. How does exercise change the brain? So this is fascinating, actually. So, you know, we know that the human brain has the natural capacity to reward us for doing things that help us survive. And there are a lot of drugs that hijack those reward systems to make us feel euphoric um, or, you know, to give us these incredibly mind-altering states of consciousness. Um, but all of those drugs, they're basically tapping into a natural capacity that the human brain has. And exercise is one of the, the natural rewards that activates many of those same systems. So we know, for example, when you get your heart rate up a little bit, moderate intensity movement, like going for a walk or doing some yoga or, or dancing or anything that gets your heart rate up a little bit, you're using energy. We know that that increases, first of all, um, adrenaline and dopamine in your brain, which tends to give you a surge of optimism and energy. That's at first, it's sometimes called the feel better effect in research, that if you have been inactive and you start to move your body in any way at all, most people within a couple of minutes immediately feel they have more focus, more energy, more optimism and hope. Um, and that's largely due to the fact that when you're using your body, your brain says it's time to, to give you access to energy. If you persist a little bit longer, say 20 minutes or so, we know that the brain will reward you by increasing levels of endocannabinoids, which is the neurotransmitter that cannabis mimics. And endocannabinoids basically take it a step beyond that, that feel better effect. So when endocannabinoids naturally surge, um, it really decreases stress and anxiety and worry, as well as physical pain, frustration, anger. So while it's quieting those things down in the brain, endocannabinoids also um, deeply enhance all forms of pleasure. So anything you're doing in your body that feels good suddenly feels better. It particularly enhances the pleasure of social connection. So if you're moving with other people, or even if you just finish your workout and then you go and you, you, know, you talk to a family member or a coworker, it's gonna feel better to, to talk, to share stories, to laugh, to get a hug. Um, and that's the sort of the secondary psychological effect of exercise. Again, if you persist for 20 minutes or so, 
um, you're going to have so much less stress and anxiety and also a brain that is primed to enjoy life, to experience pleasure. And we know that other forms of movement, so let's say adding music or moving with other people often creates a strong endorphin rush. So, you know, you get the right playlist for your workout and suddenly you've got extra endorphins circulating in your brain that often produce that kind of euphoria. I tend to get that from moving with other people. Um, it's called collective joy. We also know that exercising in nature has its own mind altering effect that is very similar to the peace of mind that people find in meditation when they've been training for years to quiet their mind. And many people will find as soon as they are active in nature, whether walking or hiking or cycling or swimming, that the effect on the brain is actually quite specific and it calms the mind um, in, in a way that can be a tremendous relief to people who struggle, say, with anxiety or depression. And these are just a few of the ways, and I'm gonna pause for a moment because I know you also asked how exercise changes the brain, um, but I would love to hear, like, I don't, in your own experience, do you have that feel better effect? Do you know what that, um, when I'm talking about that endocannabinoid rush that makes you sensitive to pleasure, have you felt that in your own life? Well, you know, I would love to experience all those things that you, you write about in your book. But for me, exercise is a lot of work. It's, so what am I doing wrong? Nothing. Why should exercise not be work? Part of what it invites your brain to reward you is that you are doing something that requires effort and energy. And actually, the, you know, the evolutionary thinking behind this is your brain is rewarding you for doing the same type of intensity activity that our ancestors needed to do to forage or to hunt or to gather food. Um, so I think the idea, I think sometimes um, people who mean well and are trying to encourage people to be active will talk about how you don't need to break a sweat, you don't really need to do, you know, you can do just one minute at a time, just accumulate your steps here and there. But if we're talking about exercise for mental health, type of exercise, and we can talk in a moment about this, about how exercise can literally change the, not just the function of your brain in the short term, but in the long term to make you more resilient to stress, hmm. to increase your capacity for joy and social connection. These are effects that we know happen when people are regularly active. It actually does require a bit of intensity and effort, the, the kind that would require you to break a sweat or get your heart rate up. And one of the things we know about um, what determines whether people will stick with, with movement or exercise or um, give up is how they interpret those early sensations of effort. So one person might experience their heart rate increasing, which can be a little bit fatiguing in the short term. You know, you notice you're starting to sweat um, and think, gosh, this means I'm out of shape. You know, this, I'm too old for this. This is just not for me. I don't like how this feels. And another person, maybe because they've got that right playlist on and they're listening to Lizzo singing about her fitness, and that same person is thinking, I'm sweating while I'm doing something that's really good for me. And they feel their heart pounding and they don't think I'm too old or too weak for this. They think like, like this, is, this is what it feels like to have my heart in it. This is what it feels like to be, um, to be moving myself in the direction of greater health and greater joy. And so um, just like in the uh, upside of stress, I talked about the importance of sometimes embracing things that are uncomfortable and difficult because they're connected to something that you care about and something that you value. And for many people, in order to get the full um, mental and emotional and social benefits of movement, you need to be willing to embrace the fact that, yeah, your, your legs might feel tired. You might, you might fail the first time you try to do something difficult. You know, you try to master a new move and like, well, that didn't go so well. Mm -hmm. um, part of what makes movement so powerful 
whether we're talking about your brain health or how it changes the way you feel about yourself, is that um, it often is a challenge. And that's part of the magic of it. You also talked a lot about how movement connects people. It's perhaps, if I read it right, the, one of the most important parts of discovering that joy. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the book is about the guy who founded an organization called Good Gym, who sends mm -hmm. volunteer runners to visit socially isolated older adults in London. I love that idea. Yeah, Good Gym is one of my favorite organizations too. So, uh, so let's back up for a second and think about like why something like Good Gym is so amazing. Yeah. So I mentioned that when you exercise, it changes your brain chemistry in a way that makes social connection easier. And I think this is one of the reasons why when you talk to people who exercise regularly, even if they intended to get into it, to get time by themselves, I've, I've heard from so many people who thought, I'm gonna run because it's gonna be me time. And they end up forming these amazing friendships with people, whether in running groups or, you know, uh, just other people who are training for the same event. So even if they're spending a good deal of their time exercising alone, they can't help but form these um, often call it fit families. And that's because, again, when you exercise, you're literally priming your brain for social connection, um, whether it's the endocannabinoids or the endorphins, which are also bonding hormones. You know, when you have an endorphin rush, at the same time as somebody else, you share that experience, it bonds you. It's why people go to horror movies on first dates because they know that that shared endorphin rush is gonna help people connect. And exercise is like that. Um, and you can, you can truly strengthen relationships by moving together and you can find communities and form friendships by moving together. Um, so that's part of why something like Good Gym works so well. Um, and also because we know that for many people, social connection is a natural reward that makes whatever you're doing while you connect more enjoyable and meaningful. So, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't love to run, but you want to run more often, you know, maybe for health, um, you like the idea of being a runner. So what they did is they would just say, okay, we're gonna give you a coach, somebody who's maybe a bit isolated, uh, doesn't have a lot of social contacts, and your job is to run to them, spend time with them, have tea, help them out around the house a little bit, and then run home. And what they found is that runners often felt quite motivated to do that. They felt um, there was some accountability there. And then because they'd just gone for a run, they were in this amazing state, ready to connect and forming friendships with their coaches who were these socially isolated older adults. And I talked to some folks who have these coaches and, and the relationships are real and they become actual networks of support. But the other thing that Good Gym does, which I love so much, is they also have these running groups where you will meet up somewhere in your community and you will walk or run to a location where you do a community service project together. And then you walk or run back to where you started and often will you know, go out for drinks or dinner. And uh, those communities are also just flourishing the relationships that form because people are exercising and priming themselves for that connection. And then also doing something really for the good of their community. And again, this, this draws back to why our brains reward us for exercise. In a very deep way, our brains associate being physically active with not just our own survival, but caring for our community. That's how early humans survived. We hunted and foraged and gathered together and shared you know, what we were able to find so that we as a community and, and as a collective could survive. Cooperation is like built into our DNA as much as any sort of exercise high to keep us out there you know, searching and gathering. And so I think it's one of the reasons why so many people, when they finally find joy in movement, 
a big part of that joy is the sense that they are connecting with other people who share their goals um, and experience that that sense of um, that we're in this together and these are people who care about me. Oh, that's great. Let's talk about the runner's high or what you call in the book a persistence high. You wrote that the, uh, the key to unlocking the runner's high is not the physical action of running itself, but it's continuous, moderate intensity. People have felt it cycling and walking on treadmills in an incline and hiking outdoors. You just have to put in the time and effort. Is that right? Yeah, so this is basically what we've been talking about, the, the brain's natural reward for physical persistence. And it's not just that people have felt it. I mean, that, that scientists have drawn blood and looked at levels of endocannabinoids and said, okay, you can get this from walking on a treadmill. Um, you can get this from cycling. I personally am most likely to get my exercise high from dancing or yoga or kickboxing because those are things that I also naturally enjoy. I like the way the movement feels. And so, you know, if people have a, a relationship with movement or exercise where they feel like they don't like it, they have never enjoyed it, and they're looking to experience more joy. Um, one thing to know is you have to find something you can persist at for about 20 minutes. And maybe for you, you're going to find walking on a treadmill so unpleasant that you never even get that far in order for you know to get that that brain's right. natural reward. So maybe for you, it's about um, go to a, a animal shelter where they allow volunteers to take dogs for walks or jogs. Let me tell you how many people suddenly enjoy walking or jogging when you've got a, an animal that has been caged up who is now so thrilled to be out in the wild and in nature. Um, or maybe it is that dance party with your kids in the living room where you let your kids pick the songs and you let them do the movements and you mimic them. That is as good as a workout as, you know, finding some, some YouTube dance exercise video. Um, but there can be so much joy and playfulness in it, right? So what I encourage people to do is to figure out What's a form of movement that's already connected to something that you naturally enjoy? And the ones that are big for many people are being in nature, music that inspires or motivates you, um, doing it with other people whose company you enjoy, or doing an exercise that has a natural meaning to you. So um, I talked to a lot of women for this book um, who thought they hated exercise until they found true strength training, whether it was kettlebell training, powerlifting or CrossFit, and they had never sensed their own strength as they did when they were doing a kettlebell power swing or doing a deadlift. And that suddenly like exercise meant something completely different to them because they felt amazing being able to do these difficult things. And, uh, and sometimes that's the secret to getting your exercise high is also to find the exercise where you think, you know, if I were to watch someone else do this, I would be impressed, I would be inspired, and to find the, the starting point for you. Um, I feel that way about boxing. Interesting. So perhaps another reason might be that self-criticism, that you know, we're not happy with the way our body looks, or we feel awkward in that dance workout class, or we're not as fit as we were when we were younger. And you wrote, if there is a voice in your head saying you're too old, too awkward, too big, too broken, too weak, physical sensations from movement can provide a compelling counter argument. Um, can you talk about that and give those of us who have heard those voices in our head some hope? Yeah, so this is the idea that um, part of how 
you know who you are is the physical feedback that you get from your body. And too often, how we know who we are is we spend too much time looking in the mirror or we listen to what other people are telling us about ourselves. Um, and we get these sort of internalized sense of self that can become a, an inner critic, a source of shame. And what we know from movement is if you move your body in a way that requires power, um, you get feedback from your muscles and your joints to your brain that don't just say, you know, my legs are powerful, but your brain understands that as I am powerful. Um, if you move your arms with grace, let's say you go to a bar class or you, you know, you're beginning to learn ballroom dancing and you are mimicking your teacher and suddenly your arm is floating through space and your fingers are extended. You sense that. And that sensation lets you know, I am beautiful. I am graceful. And sometimes you do have to get through a period where it feels a little bit awkward, but you know what? Human beings are amazing at learning and growth and movement is one of the best ways to experience that. And it can happen at every level and at every age. In the book, I write about going to a dance class for people with Parkinson's disease, including quite late stage Parkinson's disease, where people have lost um, most of their mobility. And in this dance class, because of the combination of music, the encouragement of the instructor, the support of the community, um, people were able to move in ways that express joy and grace and beauty and musicality in ways that were almost miraculous um, considering how how strongly Parkinson's actually um, impairs those abilities. But in that exercise class, people were able to, to move in those ways and experience that aspect of themselves, um, which can be a, a great source of happiness and meaning and, and hope. Um, and so that's sort of what that's about. It's about allowing your body to tell you who you are because of the, the direct, unarguable meaning of what you're doing. Um, and when those voices come up that say, like, maybe I don't belong here, or why did that person, you know, in the corner, it looks like they're doing it better or longer or using a heavier weight, um, go back to how it feels in your body. Just last night when I was teaching class and we were doing this lunge and squat sequence, and I was saying to people, you know, if you need to take a break, you need to celebrate that you got to that point. Cause that, that when your body says literally, I can't keep going. And that's the, the honest truth. <laughs> that, that means you are getting stronger. Yeah. You need to feel that sensation. And I want you to celebrate when you take a break. Don't feel bad about it. Be like, I did it. I got there. That was one of the things that I really loved about the book was that I felt like it was written for people like me. It really wasn't I mean, it's written for everybody, but it wasn't just for those people who already have a very active lifestyle. No, and it's not for people who fit the stereotype of, um, you know, what we think young and fit looks like. It's true. I made a conscious choice that maybe 80, 90 percent of the stories in this book are people who are older adults or people who have physical disabilities or serious mental health challenges like um, recurring depression or recovering from trauma. Um, you know, people who don't fit the stereotype we think of, of, of who enjoys movement and, right. and who exercise is for. And that was a very deliberate choice because again, as I said, in my own life, that, that, you know, movement gives us access to human strengths, including whether it's neuroplasticity and our ability to recover from things like trauma or, um, or illness, 
it gives us access to our capacity to connect with one another, to enjoy cooperation, to uh, enjoy human interdependence. It gives us access to our ability to celebrate, to love music, to move in, in joyful. I mean, it's just, this is for everybody. And it's not just for people who were gym class heroes or natural athletes. And the great thing about, about how movement affects our brains is that the older we get, actually the more receptive your brain gets to the joys of movement. So even at the same time that maybe, you know, you feel like you're, you have some injuries you're carrying around in your joints or other challenges, the brain continues to get more and more sensitive and more and more responsive to the benefits of exercise. In the chapter called Collective Joy, you talk about the joy we get out of uh, being active as a community. I want to read a, a short section and have you comment on it. While most people find pleasure in synchronized movement, some people are especially drawn to move in unison with others. One possible reason has to do with the link between collective joy and cooperation. It turns out that people who have uh, a pro-social orientation to life, that is, they enjoy witnessing other people's happiness and are motivated to help others who are struggling synchronize more easily with others. Something in their mindset or biology makes it easier to merge in collective action and lose themselves in the movement. Then a few sentences later, you wrote, outsiders cannot understand the appeal. This is a joy for which spectatorship falls short. Talk about that. Yeah, so this is getting to my true love, um, group exercise or group movement classes. So I mentioned I've been teaching yoga and dance and other forms of group exercise for 20 years. And so this is the joy of, like, so of course you could step touch in your living room, right? You could do sun salutations at home on your own yoga mat. But there is a different feeling when you're in a room full of people who are all lifting their arms up overhead and looking up and inhaling at the same time and then folding forward and exhaling at the same time. It's called collective joy, and it gives us a sense of self-transcendence. It allows us to feel bigger than sort of our, our limited self or our limited lives and feel connected, not just to other people, but, but often to, to literally just a, a sense of something bigger than us. Um, and it's one of the reasons why so many people find both joy and hope in things like walking for a cure or even marching in a protest um, or going to a dance class. Or as I've often seen, people struggling with, um, with grief and loss, finding tremendous uh, a sense of being held mm -hmm. in a, a flow yoga class. Um, and I do think it's so interesting that not everybody loves that. And the people who, who get it the quickest, who find it easy to fall into sync with other people stepping and clapping, and also to synchronize with the beat of music, um, and, and who enjoy that feeling, they often are people who have a more altruistic bent in life, um, who sort of their orientation to life is one of connection and interdependence. And, uh, I, you know, we haven't talked about this, but a lot of my own science um, that I've been a part of, of conducting has been looking at how to help people sustain compassion and helping, even in the midst of really serious challenges and, and a suffering that's not easily solved, you know, whether you're a healthcare provider or you're a caregiver for a loved one uh, or you just want to change the world, um, that it's often hard to sustain that, that helping energy and that compassionate motivation. And uh, I have found in my own experience that group exercise classes is one of the ways that people can sustain that hope 
Um, psychologists sometimes call it a sense of we agency. Hmm. That when you move with other people, um, it's not it's not just like an immediate endorphin rush, but it gives you a sense that you're not alone in what you are trying to do, um, and uh, it actually becomes a, a very powerful kind of therapy for people who want to do good in the world. You mentioned music. It seems mm-hmm. like music and movement go hand in hand. We've seen Olympic athletes with their headphones on before an important swim. Uh, your book says that one of the greatest pleasures in life is to give in to the impulse to move to music, to, to sing, dance, clap, or stop. Uh, a few decades ago, there was a, a song called Come From the Heart, and the lyrics were, you've got to sing like you don't need the money, love like you'll never get hurt, you've got to dance like nobody's watching, it's got to come from the heart if you want it to work. Uh, kind of words to live by. In your yeah, book, I love it. In, mm-hmm. even in your TED Talk, you talk about courage. Is the kind of courage you're talking about the same kind of courage as dance like nobody's watching? Mm. Well, you know, so I think of courage as the ability to, to take action even when some part of you is scared, right? Some part of you is unsure, but there's something or someone you care about so much that you are willing to say yes and to take action even if you never fully get rid of that fear or anxiety or, or other things that feel like barriers. And um, I do feel like many people have to find that kind of courage around movement because there might be that, that inner critic or concerns about belonging or um, you know the, the fear we sometimes feel about walking into a new space or trying a, a new activity. Um, so that is a kind of courage. But I also wanna say that you know, since you mentioned music, music is actually, there's a, a word that I have on my wall from when I was writing the book. I was, I was trying to think, is there a word for something that gives people courage? And I, I started coining this word, um, encouragement, like a, something that, like an agent that gives you courage, that encourages yeah. you. And it's not a real word. It's one of the primary effects of music. It's why people use music to prepare them for you know, competition or anything that matters. Because music, first of all, what it does when you're listening to a song that you like, it activates the reward system in a really powerful way that gives you that same dopamine and adrenaline rush as being active with your body. And it also activates the motor system of the brain. You cannot listen to music you enjoy without your motor system lighting up. So even if you're lying perfectly still in a brain imaging machine and you are not moving your body, your motor system is lighting up. It is like begging you to move. Hmm. Um, And because of that, music basically nudges us to act, to take action, to move forward. So of course it makes exercise more pleasurable, but it also can be used to motivate us when we're feeling paralyzed by self-doubt or we're feeling it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. And actually one of the tricks that I often encourage people to do is to take a song that they like, exercise to it in any way that you enjoy. Like it's just, it's the form of movement that you like. Do some push-ups, do some yoga, go for a walk, dance. Um, The way that makes you feel the way the song makes you feel. And that becomes a memory in your nervous system and in your brain. And when you need it, use it as like a walk-on song. Play it for yourself when you have to you know, go into a meeting where you're nervous about the outcome. And when you create memories through movement with music, it's almost like, um, it's like you're creating this, this uh, you're, you're, you're embedding that song with everything that you feel when you move. And it becomes, uh, it's why athletes use it, it becomes something that gives you access to all those feelings of power or hope or joy when you need them. What a great idea. 
Talk about movement and its impact on depression. Oh, good. Yes, I'm so glad that we are getting around to this because this is, um, so, so there's many uh, ways that exercise, I should say, can help people deal with depression at every level from the molecular, which is what I, I really want to talk about, but also to the level of meaning. So I, I spoke with so many people who found that, that through movement, they were able to, to literally experience their ability to put one foot in front of the other. You know, I talked with uh, a couple of people who were struggling with severe depression and recovering from trauma, who felt that when they went for a run, they could physically sense their ability to take one more step when every cell in their body was saying, you have to stop, this is exhausting, it's too hard, I can't go any further. And that that became a metaphor for them when there was a voice in their head that would you know, even urge them to take their own life because life was too hard. So there's so a lot of really complex ways that movement can help people deal with depression and and grief and trauma. But I want to talk about the molecular because I feel like it's one of the least understood and most exciting um, ways to think about how exercise affects mental health. So you know, for for as long as basically humans have been studying the human body, we've known that muscles move your bones around. I think most people think that your muscles, they're basically just, you know, they're there to, to push your bones around in space or help you stabilize your posture. But biologists have discovered in the last 10 years that your muscles are, are endocrine organs, that they manufacture proteins and peptides uh, that basically sit in your muscles. They're in little vesicles in your muscles. And when you contract your muscles in a, a regular continuous way, as you would in any form of movement, um, your muscles start pumping out these proteins and peptides into your bloodstream. And these proteins and peptides have phenomenal effects on your physical and mental health. So let me just give you some examples. Some of these proteins and peptides kill cancer cells. Some of them are extremely good for your cardiovascular health. Some of them help you um, regulate your blood sugar, so really important for your metabolic health. And many of these proteins and peptides, they travel through your bloodstream to reach your brain. They cross the blood-brain barrier, and in your brain, they activate neuroplasticity. They activate the brain's ability to recover from things like stroke or depression. They make your brain more resilient to stress, um, and they uh, th they also help prevent things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Um, these are proteins and peptides that are manufactured by your muscles, and the only way to get access to them is to contract your muscles in a continuous way. And every single movement that has been studied will produce, and they're called myokines, by the way, which just means um, set into motion by your muscles. Hmm. And uh, this new insight um, about how the body works is basically explaining to us why exercise of all forms, moving your body in any way, why that has consistently been linked to living longer, uh, reduced risk of every disease that has ever been studied from heart disease to cancer, and also why it's such a powerful treatment for things like anxiety and depression, that, that some of these chemicals your muscles produce are literally equivalent to an antidepressant medication, which is not to say, don't take your antidepressant medications. You're right. One of the things we know is that exercise, because it enhances your brain's ability to learn and change and, and recover, is that exercise, really the way to think about it is it's not necessarily a replacement for anything else that is good for your mental health or your physical health, but it basically allows your 
brain to respond to things that are good for it with even greater um, efficiency and power. So we know that exercise enhances um, cognitive therapy and psychotherapy. We know that exercise often makes antidepressant medication more effective than only taking the medication alone. And so I think that's one way to think about how exercise um, supports depression or any mental health challenge or any form of brain health is that anytime you move your muscles, you are giving your brain medicine that's almost like personalized medicine. Whatever your vulnerability is, sort of whatever life experiences you've had that had maybe a negative impact on your brain health, that your muscles will give you exactly the medicine you need to help you repair and recover and, and find greater brain health. That's so great. Part of the joy that you described in your book comes from helping others and getting the help you need from others, whether in a 10-mile long obstacle course or carrying a loved one while walking barefoot over hot coals. You wrote so beautifully, quote, we humans so used to hiding our weaknesses or minding our own business sometimes need to practice this call and response. I'm here and I need help and I'm here, let me help you. And you described one of the most celebrated and memorable moments of Olympic history in the 1992 games in Barcelona when British runner and world record holder Derek Redmond finished the 400-meter semifinals dead last. Can you tell that story and what it demonstrates so well? Okay, I should not try to tell that story. Here's what we should do. We should have people um, watch this on YouTube. So, I mean, I'll give the I'll give the takeaway, but this is something that people weep while watching this video. Yeah. yeah. If you haven't seen this, um, the, the story is basically that that Derek Redman, who was supposed to be able to medal in this Olympics, um, he he experiences debilitating injury at the beginning of his race, and um, I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen it. But just, you know, look at YouTube, Derek Redmond. Olympics, you will find the video. That's a beautiful thing. And the reason why I tell that story in the book is because I heard from so many people. And honestly, this was not something I had expected. But when I ask people like, you know, what, tell me about your joy of movement. Tell me about why you love rowing or dancing or running or hiking. Like, what do you love about it? People so often told me stories about having the opportunity to help others and having the, the grace of of being able to receive the help and support of others, whether it was in these extraordinary situations like people running ultra marathons and and being supported in in finishing these you know like hundred mile races, um, or whether it was in much smaller ways like the first time you are in uh, uh, a story I often heard was from women who were going to the gym for the first time and other women helping them figure out what what weight to use and being spotted in a strength training exercise. There's this ritual and routine of, um, you need help, let me help you. And now let me help you. There's a, in almost every form of movement, um, I just saw again and again, how people were practicing this, this fundamental human strength of being part of the full cycle of interdependence that you, in, in a single class or a single event, you get to help someone who needs encouragement and you get to receive help. And in our modern society, it is actually not that common to get to experience that joy in its its full circle. Like in many relationships and roles, you can be a helper. You can get that warm glow of helping others, but it can also sometimes feel exhausting. Like I alone can help and it's all on me. Or maybe in other situations, we feel like um, 
we are the one who always needs to be helped. You know, maybe we're struggling in some way. And that can feel sometimes uncomfortable to, to feel like maybe I'm, I'm weak in the situation and I, I'm only on the receiving end of other people's kindness. And that can sometimes feel disempowering. And there's something about movement that allows people to experience the joy of both sides of, of how much we need one another to survive. And um, I'm, I'm sure there are some people who are listening who are like, I thought this conversation was going to be about how going for a five-minute walk could just reduce my stress. Like, why? We're talking about human interdependence and how we need one another to thrive. And I, I, this is what people are telling me. People thought they were going, they were joining a walking club in order to, you know, improve their blood pressure. And they end up, you know, weeping while they're telling these stories about how the people in their walking club have supported them through a life crisis. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I, I don't know, that's a, that's a far jump from where I am to contemplating whether I can invest in a 10 minute workout to reduce my stress levels. Um, this is, this is part of why movement is so good for our mental health is there's something about it that it, it often brings out the best in human nature. So inspiring. When you write your books, you obviously do a lot of research and you are such a gifted storyteller. In the joy of movement, what are some of your own personal favorite stories and, and findings? Mm. My, I know I, I like fall in love with all these people in the book. Um, uh, let me share a couple. So um, one was this gym that I visited in Fairfax, Virginia. It's called DPI Adaptive Fitness. And it's a strength training gym and a boxing gym for people who um, have physical disabilities or are recovering from stroke or traumatic brain injuries. Um, you know, people who have a real need to engage in, in exercise in order to regain mobility, regain hope and optimism, regain physical function. It's an amazing place. And um, I'd, I'd asked the owner for someone I could talk to whose story would be really good for the book. And he suggested this woman who um, had become paralyzed and, and was living in a wheelchair um, in her early 20s. So it felt like her body had betrayed her and she had started um, boxing and strength training at the gym. And um, there were lots of wonderful things about her story. I won't, I won't tell like, her whole story, but the, the reason I love her story the most is initially she only wanted to talk to me if she could use a pseudonym. She was just sort of you know shy behind the scenes, not wanting a lot of attention. Um, but she was really passionate about what boxing and training at this gym had done for her. And she wanted to tell her story, but she didn't want the spotlight. And after we had talked, um, she changed her mind and she said I could use her full name. And she said the reason was that she wanted people who read the book, who in their own lives had to do something that they were scared of and wanted some support. She wanted them to be able to reach out to her. She didn't, she didn't want to, she said she didn't want to hide behind some fake name if there was somebody reading it who, who needed to reach out to her and get the kind of support that she had found at DPI. And uh, every time, I, even just when I was like writing the book, I even just thinking about it now, I am so moved by that. Yeah. You know, another example in the last chapter, the ultra runner who uses running to deal with um, recurrent depression and, and severe suicidal thinking. And, you know, his last message was he wanted his last message wasn't go run an ultra marathon. It was if you are struggling with thinking, thinking about taking your own life, you need to know you're not alone and that there are people who will help you. Um, everyone in the book was sharing their story from that point of view. And so, so they're all my favorite stories, but they're it's awesome. that, that recurring thread 
that um, that move me the most. And I hope that I hope that if people so my goal in writing this book was not just to convince people to exercise. I wanted in the same way that movement can reveal what's good in human nature. I wanted people who read this book to feel elevated about about their fellow human beings and um, and what we're capable of. So great. In closing, you quoted Sigmund Lolan, uh, who said, rejecting exercise means rejecting significant experiences of being human. One of the things that I learned as I read your book is that it's not just the exercise that creates that joy. Uh, it's the community, the connection, and having the courage to not worry about what others think. We talk about the power of music. Again, years ago, there was another song that Leanne Womack recorded about her mother's hope for her her child and one line in the I hope song you dance yes i love that song it reminded me of you it was uh one line in the song says that when you get the choice to sit it out or dance i hope you dance and i think that's your message for everybody who reads that book right it is. I'm. Thank you. That I because I I cry whenever I listen to that song, um, and I often will use it as the cool down in my dance classes. Um, yeah. I hope that. I hope you will walk. I hope you will swim. I hope you will challenge yourself to lift, lift heavy things. I hope that you will move your body in any way that it can still move with gratitude for what a gift it is to have this human life, and that at the end of the day, movement is a way to experience that. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in the book is that I was stunned to find out how many hospice centers offer exercise programs because what people have discovered is that at the end of life, when you have a choice about how to spend your remaining minutes, for those people who can still move their bodies in any way at all, many of them choose to exercise because they say it's in that moment that they know they're alive and in that moment they feel hope. And um, I feel like that is that is sort of an essential truth about moving our bodies. And so I hope people will move, and I hope that they will move with a, a sense of gratitude for the gift that life is. Kelly, you're making such a huge difference. Thank you so much for appearing on Straight Talk for Real Life. Thank you. If after listening to this podcast, there's a little voice in your head encouraging you to be more active, my hope is that you listen to it so that you can discover the joy that Kelly McGonigal describes in her book, The Joy of Movement, how exercise helps us find happiness, hope, connection, and courage. The link between physical activity and joy offers a compelling reason to make some changes. Quoting Kelly one more time, for some people, it's a matter of finding the right activity at the right time. It's about finding the movement their bodies were made for. As always, HPE offers its employees many great free resources to improve their health. For employees in the U.S., look for those resources on HPE Wellness and outside the U.S. on the Global Wellness page. That's all for this edition. Thanks for listening to this episode of Straight Talk for Real Life. If you enjoyed it, please let us know by subscribing to this podcast. Let's talk again soon.